Hello and welcome to World of Migration, a podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that delves into topics on immigration, immigrant integration and humanitarian protection with some of the big thinkers on these issues. My name is Kate Hooper and I'm a policy analyst with MPI's International Programme. On today's episode, we'll be talking about investor visas. These visas offer residency rights in exchange for a financial contribution and they've attracted a lot of controversy in recent months. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in early 2022, there has been new scrutiny of who is applying for investor visas and why. Several European countries have decided to block Russian nationals from applying or to close their visa programs altogether, citing concerns about the potential for misuse. But these discussions also touch on a longer running debate about whether countries should be able to sell residency rights and under what conditions, and if so, what the potential benefits of these programs might be. I'm joined by Madeleine Sumption, who is the Director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Madeleine has been researching investor visas for the past decade, and we wrote a paper together on this topic a few years ago. So I'm delighted to have the chance to chat with her about investor visas today. Madeline, let's dive right in. Thanks for inviting me along. I think we can start with the basics. What are investor visas and how do they work? Okay, so investor visas, um, there are lots of different designs, but the basic uh, characteristic is that they give people immigration status in return for a passive investment. And the passive bit is quite important. So they're not entrepreneur visas. They're often other sets of visas uh, for people who would be um, actively involved in in managing a business. Um, Investor visas uh, typically don't really require you to do anything specific after you get the the visa. You don't necessarily have to to work or, or manage a business. The other uh, key piece of investor visas is that they require an investment. So, and this is investment of money, either in, uh, there are a number of different designs. Some of them require investments in some kind of government bond. Um, some require investments in the private sector. That's actually the most common model. Um, uh, there are models that reward investments in real estate. And then there are some that aren't really investments at all, where effectively the applicants are just making a payment and they're getting uh, status in return. Most programs around the world are giving um, some kind of visa or or residence permit that may lead over time to permanent status or or citizenship. There are some programs that have given citizenship away either immediately or after a pretty short period, like in Malta or um, several Caribbean islands. But, you know, so kind of taking into account the fact, you know, there are lots of different models, but they all have these characteristics of people coming for a a passive um, investment um, of, you know, a finan- rewarding a financial transaction effectively. Now, the purpose of these programs, they're basically, I mean, they have two main stated objectives. One is to you know, attract um, money that um, or capital that uh, will have beneficial economic effects. And the other one is to, to attract people. And different programs have, depending on how they're designed, different programs sometimes have different purposes. So if you ask policymakers in the United States, for example, they tend to emphasize the money more than the people, whereas actually political rhetoric in other countries has focused more on the people that they would bring in and the, the benefits of the things that they're going to do once they've uh, they've migrated. But I should say, actually, that it, it's not always totally clear why these programs exist. I think there's potentially some uh, sort of bandwagon effect where you see program, you know, countries introducing programs because other countries have them and so they assume it must be a good idea and there's also a really important sort of political and messaging component to investor programs that they use not just to do what it says on the tin but also more generally to send a message about their country to say for example that they're open for business 
I really like that last point about the signaling effect of investor visas. So you mentioned that there are programs currently in the Caribbean. So whereabouts in the world are we seeing investor visas and how do their sort of profiles vary according to region? I mean, there are a lot of countries that have investor visas. The last um, comprehensive review, I think, was a, f- a few years ago and found that there were about 60 programs in 57 countries. It's a lot of them. I mean, traditionally, there are ones that have been around for decades in high income traditional destinations like, for example, Australia and New Zealand. Some of those are actually, you know, there have been some, I think some of the, those governments are actually starting to rethink the programs a little bit and, and back off in some cases. So we saw a longstanding program in the UK uh, close at the beginning of 2022. But uh, one of the interesting things about investor programs is it's not just countries in the global north that are running them. You also see places that are not traditional um, destinations for, for international migrants, um, like, for example, places like St. Kitts and, and Nevis, which is, and Dominica in the, the Caribbean, which have, have also had programs now for decades. And of course, you also get the golden visas in countries like Spain and Portugal as well. So there are a few different models kind of floating around there when we talk about investor visas. That's right. And I think and different people use the different models in different ways. And this, I think, is, is quite interesting. So you have a group of people who are using them as, you know, who actually want to relocate and they're using them often as a kind of leisure visa. So they're, they, they want to move to another country for quality of life. Often they're interested in um, getting their children and education in a high income country or just sort of escape from things they don't like about their country of origin, like pollution or, or crime. And then you have this other category of people that's often different, you know, potentially attracted to different programs as well, who are using them to avoid problems with other immigration statuses. So, for example, in the United States, one of the big groups of people using the investor program um, is not necessarily people coming from overseas, but um, Indian nationals who are stuck in decades long um, green card backlogs and see this as a way to sort of escape from that. And then, of course, you have a third group of people who actually don't really want to relocate at all on the visa. Um, so they're interested more in visa-free travel rights that come with having a status. Because if you're a, you know, if you're a business person from uh, Russia or China or Iran, um, your options can be really restricted for travel. You have to spend a lot of time applying for visas. And business people find this really, really constraining. So, um, so for them, it can be helpful, you know, to have, a, if you have a residence permit in Portugal, for example, you get visa-free travel in the uh, the Schengen area, or even better, uh, you know, a Maltese passport can get you um, very good visa-free travel rights um, around the world. So there's kind of different policy designs implicitly encourage different ways of people using the, the visas. And what do we know about the people who are using these visas? You've touched on the point that mobility actually varies with these visas. So in some cases, people are permanently relocating to another country. In other cases, they really may not go there at all. But what else do we know about the sort of profile of people using these visas? So the statistics overall are are not brilliant. We have we have some basic nationality um, data, but we often don't have a lot of data on st- economic activities, what people are, are doing. We do know that China and Russia have traditionally been the top countries of origin for people using investor visas. You also have uh, quite a few people from the the Middle East. So typically, it's it's wealthy people in developing countries where their passport doesn't necessarily get them the kinds of rights that they would like, or um, people who want uh, to to relocate or have their families move. One interesting thing, that, uh, thing I think about the, the profile of people who use them is that there are a surprising number of women. In some countries, you see that the, the, the main applicants, that's actually a majority of, of women using the visas. And, and part of the reason for that is that you have, okay, so if you've got wealthy people, 
often they will have their wealth will come from um, running a business in somewhere like Russia or China. And those people don't necessarily um, actually want to move themselves. They're busy you know, running their successful business in China, but they're interested in the opportunity for their children and their spouses to move. So often what you have is a kind of split family model where it's the spouse and the children who move on the investor visa. And then the main breadwinner in the family um, doesn't actually want to move at all. And they will either stay at home or maybe they'll sort of come back and forth for, for visits, depending on um, whether the, you know, the program has residence requirements effectively require them to spend a lot of time in the country. And so a second question for you is about the economic impacts of these programs. So you talked about how one of the goals of investor visas is to raise revenue, but what's the evidence on this? You know, what do we know about the impacts to date and do they really live up to this hype? Yeah, if you look at the policy design, we can speculate about what they're for, right? So you have real estate programs and we can say, okay, well, that looks like maybe it's designed to boost the property market or encourage construction activity or, or you know, renovations. Or, you know, if you look at countries um, with models that incentivize investments in private sector businesses, you, you know, you might plausibly assume that the goal of that is to have a lower cost of capital for, uh, for businesses to encourage new economic activity and, and, and create jobs. Um, I think what's really interesting is once you start to dig below the surface a little bit, it's actually quite unclear, even just looking at these, looking at the theory behind the programs, it's quite unclear how some of these benefits are even likely to arise. So we have some countries, for example, um, that have incentivized um, investments just in ordinary government bonds or buying shares in, in listed companies. Now, on paper, um, in most markets, the, the value of having a few hundred people buy some government bonds on the uh, the regular market is going to be pretty close to, to zero. Um, so there's sometimes a disconnect between you know what the policy looks like it's designed to do, and then when you actually look at it in detail, what it, what it is doing. I think also, you know, when you talk to policymakers about what the programme's before they will often emphasize the value of the people that they want to bring in so kind of getting these entrepreneurial go-getting people who will contribute to business life but then if you look at the program okay is an investment a very good way to select those people not really because the investment itself doesn't require any skill that's that side of things is typically um delegated anyway to uh, to professionals and so and actually there are certain reasons to think that someone who people who are wealthy are in some cases actually it's harder for them to relocate they may be more interested if you're interested in attracting people who you know just um, are going to pop in and out uh, because they they want visa-free travel then that's fine if you want people who are actually going to relocate it's surprisingly difficult to get wealthy people who are often by the time they have enough money to apply for these maybe they're in their 40s or 50s they as i mentioned earlier they're busy being successful somewhere else and that they don't actually necessarily want to relocate at that at that stage. So the people who are really entrepreneurial, the people who policymakers appear to want to attract are often actually younger uh, people who don't necessarily yet have the kind of wealth that you would need um, to uh, to buy into an investor visa, uh, unless, of course, they've their parents are very wealthy and they've and they've inherited it. So I think these sort of these conceptual challenges in the program, I, I think there's, you know, there's reason to believe that some of these programs just haven't been that well thought through in terms of how they're going to generate the benefits. And one result of that is where there have been evaluations or research on the on the programs and what their impacts are, they have really often found that um, that the economic results are quite disappointing. 
And where do you think that the economic argument is most strong then when we're talking about the benefits of these programs? Because we talked about a couple of different models here. One is the government bonds, which you say the evidence is a bit weak, um, but there are other models like golden visas where you're investing in property or businesses um, or um, ones where you're giving sort of donations to a government fund. I mean, from a strictly economic sense, where do you think that the argument is strongest for these investor visas? So this is where it gets controversial because certainly if you look at the theory, um, the most compelling option is just having a non-refundable payment where people hand over the money and uh, and they don't get it back. It's very difficult in practice to get really convincing economic benefits out of something that's a genuine commercial investment. And the reason for that is is primarily because if the investments are attractive enough to be to be you know, proper investments that would survive on the regular market, then if you have if you effectively tell people you can get an investor visa if you buy into this, it's most likely just displacing other investment that would have gone into the same types of activity. And so I think you know policymakers are often interested in the idea uh, that maybe the money will go to businesses who, in the case of private sector-based programs, the money will go to businesses that couldn't otherwise have have raised the funds. The problem is that applicants don't want to invest in those things, right? They're not investing because they're venture capitalists interested in the next exciting, you know, high-risk startup. They're investing because the immigration system is telling them to. Um, and so they tend to gravitate to low-risk projects that are, the, um, that are attractive enough to actually be able to attract capital, uh, even in the absence of, of an invest, investor program. So I think if you go and follow that logic through, where you get to is that actually from a purely economic perspective, what makes sense is to is to take a non-refundable donation. Of course, the problem is this is horribly controversial, and it makes and, and it's controversial because it it makes it obvious that what's going on is not actually a genuine investment, but just a payment for for status, which tends to be very unpopular. Really, kind of makes that transactional nature of um, of the relationship between the government and the uh, and the applicant much more transparent. So there are a couple of ways that in practice that from a policy perspective, that, that this gets resolved. One is to say, okay, well, we're not going to take payments. We're going to go for something like a private sector investment or a real estate investment. And as I explained, that's typically going to be less economically beneficial, or in, in some cases, the investment itself will have no benefit. There's a lot of research on the kind of ethical implications of investor visas that suggest that that effectively governments are sort of selling their souls um, in order to, to get this useful money. But actually, I think, you know, in many cases, they're giving away their souls for free because there isn't actually that much, um, much benefit. And then so, so that's one way of doing it. You say, OK, well, we're just not going to get that much benefit out of the investment. And that's fine. Maybe the benefit is the people instead. Or the other option that's sort of interesting is, OK, well, we're going to sort of disguise this investment. So maybe you have, instead of just taking a certain amount of money, maybe you have an interest-free loan where effectively the person is, it's the same thing, they're making a transfer of, of cash, but they're just losing their money more slowly over over a period of, of time because they're not getting any interest on it. Or in the uh, the case of the, uh, the US um, EB-5 investor visa is really interesting because what's effectively happened and this wasn't I don't think explicitly um, a policy intent to disguise a payment but it's, a, it's in, in practice what happens is that it, the way that it's been structured effectively creates a subsidy from that's provided by the applicant to the business uh, because the applicant tolerates very low rates of return um, over a, over a number of years um, in order to get their visa and the business is effectively making a profit from that because otherwise they would have had to, to, to get you know maybe an expensive bank loan at more than a 10% rate. 
So what you end up having is something that looks on paper like an investment, but actually is a payment uh, from the applicant, in this case, to the business. I know that Malta and the European Commission have gone back and forth over the years about how to structure the citizenship by investment program that they launched because of this question, right, about how to put a price on residency rights and what other sort of what other requirements you might set for potential investors to demonstrate links to Malta and to address this sort of ethical issue around, you know, selling residency rights and the ethics of doing so. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how that controversy played out and where they landed in terms of balancing simplicity of the program, economic benefits, and then also the sort of broader ethical considerations and other sort of political priorities? Mm. Yeah, so the the Maltese scheme was um, first developed in uh, 2013-14. And what I think is really interesting about it is that it had all of the ingredients of of the most controversial program you can imagine in the sense that Firstly, it was taking a non-refundable payment, um, but also it was giving away citizenship rather than resident status on the way to citizenship. Now, in other cases, I think especially on the, the point of taking a, a non-refundable payment, I actually think that the, the lines are much fuzzier than people realize in that applicants, even to programs like the US one, which, which appears to be an investment or you know, many other programs around the world, Applicants actually often see this as a payment for status anyway. They see it as sort of immigration money that they have to dedicate in order to be able to attain the the status. Um, So I I think that, um, you know, the relationship is always inherently transactional, um, even if it's not just a a blunt payment. It's just that it looks much more (laughs) payment-like when, you know, when when there's just this obvious price tag on it. On citizenship, I think for a whole host of reasons, citizenship, has, it has a lot of sort of symbolic and emotional content that a, a residence permit doesn't have. And so people care much more deeply about um, citizenship policies, typically, than, than residence permit, because citizenship also symbolizes membership in, in society. And, um, and so there's something particularly sensitive about a program that gives away citizenship. Now, in the end, the way that this was resolved, Malta didn't back down on the core principle of the program, which is that um, they would give away citizenship and they would receive a payment in return. But they added a bunch of other things um, that sort of uh, created the impression that it was more than just a payment for citizenship. Um, And um, so there was a a delay of a year before you could get the citizenship. And you you have to show that you have a genuine genuine link with Malta through things like maybe being a member of a club or making some charitable donations, renting a property, having a mobile phone. There are various, you know, there's no sort of set list of things. But what's interesting, of course, you go on the internet and you can find professional service, you know, people are marketing services like, yeah, yeah, we'll set up your club membership and your mobile phone and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's very difficult. This idea of what a genuine link is, um, is, of course, it's incredibly slippery concept and unless you're going to have an incredibly discretionary system where some you know official sits down and has a chat with the person and then makes a probably quite unpredictable and arbitrary decision about whether they think a genuine link is there you know I, I just I don't think that it's really something that immigration systems are very good at um at identifying and what are some of the other controversies that we've seen in um investor visa programs yeah, they have so you know the yeah, citizenship and the um, non-refundable payments have have been uh, one of the sources of, of controversy. I guess the other would be um, sort of grouped together broadly as integrity concerns, um, and this is either 
the integrity of the system. So is there fraud? Is there compliance with the immigration rules? Or concerns about the, the backgrounds of the people who apply to them. Now, on the issue of, of people's backgrounds, there are rules, you know, almost all programs will have uh, requirements you know, effectively saying you have to you have to have earned your money uh, in legal ways. You can't use the proceeds of of crime to buy into the investor program. In practice, it's actually due diligence is quite is quite difficult. So there are countries like, for example, if you made your money in 1990s Russia, they weren't giving out receipts. There was, you know, there was um, a lot of it was a sort of wild west and um, the, the record keeping is not very good. Um, and there's all sorts of questions about what was legal and what wasn't legal anyway. And so trying to work out, you know, how this money was um, was earned is actually a, a real, real challenge. And that actually um, the concerns about the backgrounds of investors was um, was the main reason that the UK Home Office gave at the beginning of 2022 for shutting down their, uh, their investor program there entirely. Um, the other issue is is fraud, um, and this you know depends a little bit on the, the kind of system that you have. But if you have one that's where effectively you've got a, this decentralized web of private sector transactions, either in real estate or um, uh, you know like in the US with the US uh, EB five investor visa, I think there's there's a lot of there's quite a big oversight challenge for for governments making sure that the investors themselves are not uh, defrauded. And one of the interesting things there actually that we've seen in the US context is that. Um, sometimes the businesses that most need the money, the ones where you say, oh, these are the people who really wouldn't have been able to get investment without this this program, uh, are often the ones that are actually less professionalized and less well equipped to handle the compliance requirements and where you where you tend to get uh, more violations, either as a result of you know, a deliberate fraud or just because of um, because of incompetence. So we've talked about some of these compliance and integrity issues. Are there any examples of governments who have managed to address these um, challenges well in their programmes? So I often get asked, what are the best designs for um, investor visas? And I think it's very difficult to point to a single example and say this is the right way to do it just because there are always trade-offs. So I mentioned already that you've got a trade-off between um, uh, the economic benefits and the political impact of the program in that the non-refundable donation model, which is the one that's likely to be most economically beneficial, is also the least politically acceptable. There's another trade-off, I think, when it comes to compliance that um, in theory, you might want an open program where there's a market of people compete, uh, of organizations competing for investments, whether that's in, in real estate or in private sector businesses. But the, the monitoring challenge when you've got this kind of sprawling network of different organizations receiving uh, funds um, is, is much greater. And so I think there's, there's potentially an argument to, for, to have a more, slightly more centralized model where you're sort of limiting the number of organizations that can compete in this um, in this market so that you can oversee them properly. That, of course, also um, uh, brings challenges. You've got to, someone's got to decide then, well, who are, you know, who are the, going to be the beneficiaries of this, um, of this money? And is the way that those beneficiaries chosen, you know, is that transparent? Will there be allegations of, of corruption? I actually think, I mean, I'm intrigued by, the, by some proposals to basically look at existing programs that, uh, that many countries have for, um, for example, giving loans to small businesses or um, supporting entrepreneurship or any number of, um, you know, it's often there are structures that already exist, totally unrelated to the immigration system, to try and uh, help particular beneficiaries. And I think that you could probably structure 
investigated so that the funding went into a centralized place and then was dispersed. And it could be legitimate you know, private sector investment that then um, uh, the person is, is getting back after some time, um, you know, possibly with, with interest. It doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you don't have to turn it into a cash payment. But I, I think probably if you're really serious about trying to get an economic benefit out of the investment, um, I, I think probably you end up uh, moving towards some kind of centralized system that has a bit more oversight. And final question, because I know we're running a little short on time, is what do you think the future holds for investor visas? So this is obviously quite difficult to say. Um, I do think um, I think that the demand among applicants is 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 not going to go away. Um, you know, we have we still have large um, wealthy uh, middle and upper classes in. Um, in developing countries, um, and this you know this has been the sort of the market for uh, for investor visas, and those those people they continue to to be there. They continue to be interested in um, having these options for for travel or for for residence in in other countries. So I think in some ways the question is not will people still want investor visas, which I think unless something very strange happens, they probably will. But will countries still still offer them? Um, now, we've seen over the last um, few years a few high-income destination countries rethinking their strategy a little bit. You had Canada closing its um, program a number of years ago, um, the UK in early 2022, Australia reducing its um, the number of people coming um, on who could come on, on investor visas. Um, but overall, I think um, I wouldn't necessarily... Um, expect a massive reversal. I, I think that the programs will probably continue to to exist for a couple of reasons. One is that um, often in many countries, this is quite a niche area of immigration policy, and it just doesn't get revisited that often. A lot of governments, they just have much bigger fish to fry. And so this, unless there's a sort of big scandal blowing up, or there's some reason that it really becomes the center of, of public attention, I think a lot of these programs just sort of chug along in the background with no one paying that much notice to them. And then the other reason is I, I do think that um, some policymakers are concerned about the optics of of closing a program. We know, like in public policy in general, there's a bias against closing programs because governments um, don't like to admit that um, the policy hasn't worked, or they um, they can feel like, well, no, this is you should just retool it. We shouldn't necessarily close it. You know, don't let's not give up on the whole thing in, entirely. Um, and more generally, I think closing something that has the label investor on it um, might, you know, the policymakers sometimes worry that it that it will make it look like they're shutting themselves off from the world or they're not open for for business. So in that perspective, I think that that you know those kind of symbolic and political benefits will probably still be there, even um, even if you have the occasional scandal, you know, related to specific people who are who are using the programs. Um, in which case, you know. We, the benefits of the programs can be a little, um, the political benefits can be a bit fragile. Um, and so you, you know, you've got the, you've got benefits of saying, okay, investors are creating um, jobs and this sounds very attractive. People like that. But then of course you have this other narrative um, that is actually much more attractive. I think probably to the media that, well, these programs are admitting shady kleptocrats. And, and so you've always got this tension between the two things that I think makes um, investor programs potentially a bit unstable. You're seeing, you, you see programs kind of suspended and then reintroduced. But I, I don't, in terms of the overall concept, I, I suspect that it, it will persist. Well, Madeline, thank you so much for joining the podcast today and sharing your brilliant insights on this topic. Madeline, 
is the Director of the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford, and you can follow her work at migrationobservatory.ox.ac.uk or on Twitter. Thank you very much. Thanks, Madeline. Thank you for tuning in to World of Migration. If you enjoyed this conversation, please check out our other episodes. You can find World of Migration wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. You can find all the episodes for this and other MPI podcasts at MPI's website, migrationpolicy.org podcasts. This episode was produced by Yusuf Hamid and made possible with help from Michelle Middlesat and Lisa Dixon. Our theme music is called Bright Idea by Geographer. I'm Kate Hooper. Thank you again for listening and see you next time.